Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Power of They. Have you ever wondered who they are and why we all care so much about what they say, they think, they will do, and how they dress? We all have a perception and a preoccupation with what the great unknown they think. But what if we were ruled by the opinion, voice, and wisdom of not they, but Him, our Lord and Savior, Jesus? Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Oh, look at that title. The Power of They. You guys ever met They? Uh, A Study in the Sway of Public Persuasion. So this is a very long title, I know. Uh, And every once in a while I whip out a subtitle just to sort of give greater clarity. But this is a study... In something very specific, and that's the sway of public persuasion. You know that a Christian, by most basic definition, is one set free from the sway of public persuasion. You know that you actually don't care what political correctness says? And you could say, well, wouldn't that be nice? No, that is Christianity. I remember A.W. Tozer saying it this way, that the gospel frees us from the tyranny of public approval. That we don't have to go after the approval of others to serve our God and to live this life. We actually have the power in the gospel to see those cords that bind us to what they think cut. Now, it's highly likely that many of us in here, if not all of us in here, have a few cords attached to us. Now, if we go back in time, let's say some of you are actually strong Christians in here. You go back in time, and there's a lot more cords... And so granted, you know, most of the cords have been cut. Do you know that we oftentimes still have a few cords attached to us? You see, we don't care what they think, what they think, what they think, what they think, but they over here? Well, that's a little different, isn't it? I mean, if I didn't care what they thought, I mean, my life would not look too good. I would get in trouble very quickly. And so let's start studying the they. Let's start understanding how this works. Now, in a very simple nutshell, you guys have heard of peer pressure. Peer pressure is the great illustration of they. Now, most of us don't think we have any issue with peer pressure. I mean, we're graduated from uh, high school. I mean, that's way back in junior high, high school. What is peer pressure? Let's just break it down and get it out on the table what it is. When you are pressured by those around you that you want to have their good opinion, that's why you're pressured by it, you esteem their opinion, And their opinion of you matters for some reason. Why? It's hard to explain why their opinion matters. But when you allow their opinion to control you, it is idolatry. You are setting their opinion up above God's opinion. And you are reverencing their, their opinion. You are appealing. You are doing what is necessary. Making an offering of your very life before the God of their opinion. And the gospel sets us free from this idolatry. The seven most common pressure chambers. Let's just go through them, and some of you in here know a few of them. Some of you you in here know all of these pressure chambers. Political pressure. There is a, a form of pressure in this society that some of us have never actually felt. Now, you don't have to be in politics to understand political pressure. Any organization can have political pressure to it. There's a way that we do things around here, And if you're going to fit into this environment, you play by the rules. 
Well, do you know that there's a way that makes us succeed in this society? There's a way that we should do things. And that's what uh, political correctness is. If you do it this way, we'll open the door for you. If you violate our code of conduct here in our political world, well, then you're not going to get elected. We're the ones that have sway. Political pressure. Social pressure. Well, there's all sorts of ways that social pressure can come, but most of us probably understand these things. Peer pressure. Church pressure. What? How did that one get on the list? You know that one of the most dangerous forms of pressure that we will mention today actually comes from the church? And we actually feel uncomfortable following even what it says in the Word of God because of the church pressure around us. It's very bizarre. Family pressure. Parental pressure. Now, I know it sounds like the same thing, but family pressure could be brothers and sisters as well as aunts and uncles. But parental pressure is a very specific part of a family pressure. Oh, look at that one. Financial pressure. All the other ones seem to have people involved. And then financial? Well, actually, financial pressure is more than just money. It does involve a they. It does involve people. Okay? Uh, just wait till the class reunion comes up and everyone wants to know how much you're making in your life and suddenly you recognize that there is something known as financial pressure. You really want to have resources and money so that you can show your peer group that you are something. There is this funny pressure in this life. Now let's look at when we allow ourselves to come under the thumb of any of these pressure points. You see, these are all manipulations of the devil. Now I, I know that the church is not supposed to be, have anything to do with the devil. However, it can. And the enemy has used the church throughout the ages to manipulate and to control people. That's, of course, an unhealthy version of the church. It's not God's rendition of the church. But all we have to do is have a quick flashback to the Pharisees. Who crucified Jesus? You could say the Romans. Well, actually, the Romans could care less about Jesus. It was the religious system of Jesus' day that yelled, crucify him. We want Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. It was the religious system. So the seven most common results of the pressure chambers. Political pressure. What does it lead to? It leads to corruption. When we allow ourselves to be put under that thumb, it leads to corruption. And that's oftentimes what you see. If you want to keep your office, if you want to keep your seat in the Senate, if you want to keep your seat in the House of Representatives, what do you need to do? Well, you're going to need to compromise because we're not going to back you if you submit that bill. It's pressure. It's pressure, and your career is on the line. But if you heed that pressure and if you, if you listen to it, it leads to corruption in your soul and in your life and then, of course, in our nation. Number two, social pressure. When we heed social pressure... And we want to appear one way unto this group because if you don't look right, if you don't say the right thing, remember this guy cracked a joke over here and it's really an unsavory joke. It's a very unhealthy joke. But if you don't laugh, you're going to be the odd man out and you're going to look funny. And so what do you do? You chuckle, you laugh. And yet, then you come over here and show up at church the next day and you act according to what that pressure would want. What's, what's being created in this social dynamic? but with something called duplicity, which is a concept of doubleness, duplication. There's two of you, and you can't figure out which one's true and which one's not. It's called hypocrisy. Number three, peer pressure. What does it lead to? Promiscuity. To allow a looseness in your life 
in order to fit in. Oh, and I remember this. Boy, it was miserable. Even flashing back to those days is really hard. I do not even like to ponder these things. But there is a desire, there's a pressure around you to say, hey, Ludi, are you a man? Hey, Ludi, are you actually going to be like one of those moralists? Or are you going to be like us? Oh, boy, that is miserable. And it leads to a looseness of morality, a licentiousness, a promiscuity. Four, church pressure. What does it lead to? A Pharisaism. Unless you look this way, unless you dot that I, cross that T, unless you have all these things in a row, you're not one of us. And oftentimes the expectations are external. There's a way you play this game, Eric, and if you're going to fit in with us, you do it our way. And what does it lead to? It leads to a falseness. It leads to a religious exterior, but a hollow, dead interior. Number five, family pressure. Men-pleasing. And by the way, everything on the right side of these lists, corruption, duplicity, promiscuity, Pharisaism, and men-pleasing, are literally the top of Jesus Christ's list of things he wants to kick in the teeth. And the things the gospel and the power of the cross literally crushes. So we don't hang out with these things. These are the fruits of the flesh. This is what happens when you're about you. When you have set anything in your life above the opinion of God. This is what it leads to. It leads to all forms of destruction. Parental pressure. Now, I know that sounds funny because parents are supposed to be leading us in the right way. However, when you start walking the narrow way and your, your parents aren't necessarily supportive of Jesus Christ and him crucified, you know how hard this can be? And if you heed the parental pressure saying, hey, you know what? We love you, son, but if you keep walking in this way, we're going to have to cut off relationship with you. And so what do you have to decide between? That is hard stuff. And yet you must choose Jesus. You must choose Jesus and not compromise. Number seven, financial pressure. Well, some of the men in here can identify with this one. If you give way to financial pressure and you allow it to hold you under its thumb, what does it allow into your life? Anxiety. And by the way, anxiety actually has no position in the life of a Christian. You're supposed to be anxious for nothing. Is that the most extreme statement you've ever heard in the Bible? Be anxious for nothing. We're like, well, God, I, I think you mean be anxious for, you know, like, for not extreme things, but I, I think you understand that there are a lot of little things like financial pressures where we need to be a little anxious. Otherwise, we're not human. Every single thing on the right side of that list is human. We are not called to behave as other men do. We are called to behave as Christ. Don't you understand how the gospel works? You are clothed in Jesus Christ, brought under the throne room of grace in his righteousness. And in the throne room of grace, you have grace for help in time of need. Where's your time of need? Look down that list. You just see some times of need there. When the political pressure comes, when the social pressure, the peer pressure, the church pressure, the family pressure, the parental pressure, and the financial pressure come, what do you have? Well, you have access under the throne room of grace. This is a good time to come on in and get some help for time of need. You need grace. You need the power of the cross to be able to rise up in those moments and to be able to say, I serve Jesus. And yes, they're going to laugh. Yes, they're going to ridicule. Yes, they're going to build a cross. Yes, they're going to crucify you to it. That's just what happens. Because you are light in the midst of a dark world. And they don't want light in this dark world. However, you are called to be a Christian in this realm and not a compromiser. No more. 
they no longer has control over you. All right, now that's a nice statement, but let's get down to practicals. The sway of the Pharisees. In a very simple statement, we could call this the fear of man. In the Hebrew culture, the Pharisaical system literally ruled the day. That was the political correctness of their day, and no one in their right mind would ever violate it. Because if you violated this system, you would be removed from the synagogue. And to be removed from the synagogue was tantamount to being a heathen. So that's the worst thing that could ever happen, is to ever stand up against the high priest or his priests or the Pharisaical order or the Sadducees, the, any of the elders and the chief priests of the community. You just bow down. Whatever they say, hey, I'm a good Hebrew. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You may believe something different, but you, the right answer is yes, sir. The sway of the Pharisees, the fear of man. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoso puts his trust in the Lord shall be saved. The Proverbs are way too blunt. You ever notice that? It's like, well, God, it's easy to say that from heaven, but I mean, we have to live down here. And if you were in our skin, wait a minute, he was. He came and he took on our skin and he walked in and through all these pressures and he did it perfectly. And then he says, I'd like to offer you something. I'd like to offer you my life so that you can follow me. You see, he doesn't say, follow me, figure it out for yourself. He says, I would like to offer you my righteousness, to clothe you, to bring you into my throne room of grace so that you can have the entirety of my life packaged in your body so that you have strength, grace, the ability to actually do that which you must do in this world. Then came his disciples and said unto him, so this is his disciples coming up to Jesus. This is just a, a great line. Uh, knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? Uh, hey, Jesus, you just made a mistake. You're speaking a little too freely about things that don't go over very well in the Hebrew culture. Do you know that you just got on the bad side of the Pharisees? What do you think Jesus is going to say? Oh, no. Oh, no, what can I do to make that right? You see, Jesus violated. We don't understand the significance of it at the time, but you need to realize the Pharisees have the power in Israel to lead a man to crucifixion. You see, if you get on the bad side of these religious characters, they will find an excuse to kill you. You see, this is not something you mess with. Doesn't Jesus know this? He's God. Of course he knows it. He came purposely. In fact, if you study the life of Jesus, even the words chosen by Jesus, he is purposely snubbing them. He'll like whip out this one line and we're like, oh no, I can't believe he just said that. <laughs> he did it purposely. Hey, Pharisees, just in case you're missing, I'm going to say, you hypocrites, Pharisees. Just so you don't think I'm talking about someone else, I'm talking about you. You don't do that, Jesus. Let me be your counselor just for a moment. They're going to kill you if you do that. You see, Jesus came to this earth, and he was not under any pressure of the they. And I tell you what, it's just the most liberating thought to think of a life like that. What does such a life look like? It looks like Jesus. However, just so you know, just so that there's full warning and disclaimers out on the table, when you live like that, you get crucified. You guys all know that, right? So the life that we are called to as Christians 
is a life that is marked by such love and purity and grace and mercy and patience and gentleness and kindness. It is. But it refuses to play the culture's game. It doesn't play it. Doesn't even know how to play it. Doesn't want to play it. It isn't looking to appease. Well, unless you say, to appease one. All I want is the applause of heaven. It's that simple. I will forsake the applause of this earth to gain the applause of one. So here we are in John 9. There's a man that has been healed. And he's been healed by Jesus. He has never seen, his eyes have never worked in his entire life, and then suddenly Jesus touches him and heals him. The parents of this boy are brought in because this young boy, or however old he was, this young man, is testifying that he was healed by Jesus. Well, that's a supernatural work, and these leaders didn't know what to do with this. So his parents are invited in and questioned. However, they know who healed their son, But they have to make a choice in this hour. If they stand up on the fact that Jesus was the one that healed them, bad things could happen to them. There's a game they're playing here. And everyone can feel it in the air. They may not have called it political correctness, but it was pharisaical correctness. Everyone could feel it. The parents knew it. Everyone knows it. You see, we didn't live back then, so we didn't understand it. However, there are certain things that could come up in our society today. And there's a game you play. Are you saying that there's only one way to the Father? Only one way to be saved. Are you saying that all other religions except for what you happen to believe are wrong? Are you saying that everyone else is going to hell? Are you actually saying that? You know how hard of a moment that is when you're on Larry King Live? But what's the truth? You know, thanks, Larry, for bringing that up. You know, I think it's, a, it's an often misconstrued thing because a lot of uh, leaders, Christian leaders, get into this very seat and they're talking with you. And they buckle under. And they make it sound like, oh, well, I'm sure, you know, that there's probably other way. But I'm just going to tell it to you straight because this is what Jesus said to us. He is the only way to the Father. So, yes, you're right. Thanks for bringing it up. You see, we kowtow and cower and buckle. And I'm guessing if any of us are in that seat, it's easy to make a noise about it right now when we're here. It's a whole different thing when you take what you believe here and stick it out there. That's where the pressure chamber is. This isn't a pressure chamber right now. You're not feeling a pressure to compromise right here. It's out there. But the God that is training us in here will go with us when we go out there. So here we are. His parents, the parents of the blind man, answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we know not. Well, that's not true. However, they're playing a game. Or who hath opened his eyes, we we know not. He is of age, ask him. Well, let him say it. I'm not about to say it. Ask him, he shall speak for himself. These words spoke his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Hey, this is a game we're playing. Do you guys understand? If you make this statement, you're out. You're out of the synagogue. You're going to be treated like a heathen in the midst of Israel. The entire Jewish system of law and order will excommunicate you. Who's going to play that game? You know, everyone. No one is going to buck up against that. 
Jesus comes strolling into Israel and takes on the whole system. And they killed him for it. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, also many believed on him. What a statement. Amongst the chief rulers, many believed on Jesus. But listen to this. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Remember what the rule was? Look at this. That if any man did confess that he was Christ. So it's the confession that mattered. And so they believed, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Whoa, we don't want that to happen. Isn't it funny? For some of you are like, that's no big deal. I'd be put out of the synagogue. That's because you don't understand the social ramifications of it. You don't understand the political ramifications. It could destroy your career. You could have a business. You could have a family. Everyone becomes literally the hated and despised in Israel. You can't do these things to your family. You can't do this to your business. How about your extended relatives? You have a good name in Israel. You cannot do this. Or can you? You see, there is an entanglement and there are cords that are attached to our lives. The they holds us. But Jesus has come down to break those cords, to set us free so that we can live for him and not for the they. Listen to this last line. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Is that a statement or what? How about us? We say we love the praise of God. It's like, I just want to please God. Yeah, but you are looking to please men more. And as a result, you are held captive by those cords. The shocking commission. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, this is Jesus talking, to these great multitudes, you'd think if great multitudes are following after Jesus, he would be like, just so excited. And he's not going to say this. I mean, this is just the wrong thing to say in that moment, Jesus. It's like, okay, you got a big mob going. Now let's just cultivate this and facilitate this and rein it in and you know, get them sort of out of this pharisaical system and then get them off into the, you know, the outer reaches, the wilderness. We'll take them out there and then we'll teach them. Instead, he sees a big mob and he's like, uh, hmm, I'm going to have to pare this thing down. Now great multitudes went with them and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also... He cannot be my disciple. Thank you, Jesus. Boy, is that a hard one. And then, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So we have something here. Now, one of the things you're going to very quickly begin to recognize in this message is we're talking about the they's. We're talking about the things that hinder us from serving God the way he commands us to. And if there is anything that is hindering us from serving God, then we are to literally turn away from it and allow God to set us free to follow. It's a very important principle in Scripture. Now, here's the part I want to emphasize. No servant can can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, in the context of all this, doesn't mammon seem like the wrong word to use? What he should say is, you cannot serve God and the the opinion of others, or the love for others. You have to serve God alone. Instead, he uses mammon. What is, well, first of all, what is that? And then secondly, why is he choosing to use that? Because most people would even translate that, they call it money. And that's even what some of the modern translations do. They say, you cannot serve both God and money. Well, that... 
It's not that mammon can't be money. That's just one of the financial, that's just one of the pressures. But these are the seven pressures. You cannot be subservient to those pressures and have it as an idol in your life. So let's just look at what mammon is. Oh, mamonas. It means the object of earthly trust. The counterfeit savior. It's something that you turn to and say, this will save me. If you have anything in your life that you turn to that is an object of trust, a counterfeit salvation, this is mamonas, mammon. That which is perceived to save. You actually believe that it can save you. Now, most of us aren't going to actually out loud in our brain think that money will save us from hell. However, we have been duped by the devil to not think in the big picture But we think in the small picture, and we say, if I just have more money, then. Oh, if I just had, if I just could fit in and be popular, then. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're we're not, we actually think those things will solve our life's dilemmas. They're our saviors. They're many saviors. Now, if someone came up to a Christian and said, are you saying that you think popularity in school will save you from hell? They're going to say, no. They don't think that, but they still think it's a savior for them. And as a result, they're putting it in their life and it becomes a driving force. And if they could just solve it, then they will be satisfied. Then they will be at peace. You ever had that in your life where you always have the then in front of you? If, then, oh, if we could finally just get this house in order, then we will have peace. If I could just get my kids to obey, then, there's all sorts of them. A lot of times it's money, though. If we could just finally get out of debt, if we could just do this, then, I'm not saying it's not good. I'm not saying that it's, not, that it's a bad thing to have friends or to be liked by someone. It's not a bad thing in and of itself. However, we are putting it as a God in our life. It's a mamonas. It is an object of earthly trust, and we are turning to it and saying, you can help me. And we lay our life and our energy and our time, and we lay it before that altar of this mamonas, and we serve it. And if we don't hate that mamonas... We cannot love God. It's that simple. That's what it says. If we do not hate this master, then we cannot love God. And if we love God, get this, we must hate our mamonos. Anything that would try and be a counterfeit in our soul, we say, I have life today because I know Jesus. I don't have life delayed, you know, you know, a couple months from now when finally this one situation is solved in my life. I have life today in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, the final word is the treasure. The mamonos is our treasure. Now, one of the great illustrations, if you remember the story in Scripture, where there is a lady in Scripture named Mary who has a great treasure. And that treasure is the object of her trust. It's worth a year's wages. And if things go south in her life, she can always cash in her treasure. But she takes that treasure, and what does she do with it? She breaks it open upon Jesus. And so we'll go through that story in just a second, but I want you to recognize that was her mamonas. And she, in a sense, hated her mamonas so that she could love Jesus. She turned away from her idolatry towards her mamona, saying, well, I have to hold on to this. This is what's going to pull me through if it ever gets really challenging in life. Instead, she says, he is the one that's going to pull me through if it ever gets challenging in life. He is the one. I am going to take that which I have believed in, and I'm going to break it open on 
the only one who is truly a savior in my life, Jesus Christ. Nardos, isn't that a great word? Some of you should name your kids Nardos. It's actually a, you know. <clears throat> Have you ever heard the word spike nard in scripture? That's the word. Nardos is the Greek word for it. We just add spike to it probably to make it sound a little more beautiful. I'm not exactly sure how that's helping. <clears throat> Nardos is nard, just to be very specific. It's nard, the head or spike of a fragrant East Indian plant belonging to the genus Valerana, which yields a juice of delicious order, odor, which the ancients used, either pure or mixed, in the preparation of a most precious ointment. Now, you might not be very attracted to spike nard, but back in the day, this was the thing of great value. Okay? Now, there's one word here. I'm going to introduce you to another word, pastikos. You know that this nardos word is used, I think it's twice in the New Testament. Nardos, spike nard. And yet, there, in each time it's used, there is actually another word used with it. However, it's not translated. I don't know why. But both times when it talks about spikenard being broken open, it actually has another Greek word and it's pastikos. It's like pastikos spikenard or pastikos nardos. And that is that which is relied upon, that which is trusted in the object of one's faith. Pistis is the classic word in the New Testament for faith. Pastikos is an object of faith. And so this is a pastikos nardos. Each of us has a pastikos nardos. And God is saying, I'm calling you away from your object of trust, your mamonos, your treasure outside of Jesus. And are you willing to take your treasure and lay it at the feet of Jesus? So here we are in Mark 14, 1 through 10. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of the 11 bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft. And put him to death. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he, Jesus, sat at the table, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of pastikos plus nardos, called spikenard. Very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, let her alone. Why trouble you her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For you have the poor with you always. And whensoever you will do, whensoever you will, you may do them good. But me you have not always. She has done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. Now listen to this line. Verily, I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she had done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, one of the chief priests, to betray him unto them. What we have is we have a violation of the they right here. This, there's something about this scene that triggers literally Judas going unto the priests. Remember who kept the money bag? It was Judas. This was such an exotic waste to actually turn from the Pastikos Nardos to turn and to hate it, to not serve mammon, but to give all unto Jesus. You have one master. You choose which one it is. And the one in this story who is unwilling to give up his mammonos, his mammon, is the one who betrays Jesus. And I want you to recognize, we need to choose who we are in this story. You see, when the gospel is preached, this is the story. 
This is the gospel. Jesus has given up everything. He is your treasure. Go into your pantry. If you think you have anything outside of Jesus that you can lean on, break it open. Pour it out. Turn away from it because he is salvation. There is no savior outside of him. Tear down the altars of idolatry. Tear them all down. You must choose to love him and hate the other. The fixation of the soul, the they which defines every action. So we have a fixation. Now this is strange as we go through this. I just want you to allow God to search your soul. Political advantage. Now there's a question that we have going through our mind. If you were to think about being the president of the United States, or how about even being elected to office, we oftentimes have a they in our life. Now I want you to just pause for a second, and I'm going to describe it. At every juncture of our life, say every key decision that you may make in your life, oftentimes there is a they that lingers in the subconscious. You're not actually pondering them, but you are. And when you make a decision, you oftentimes think of what they would say. And so my question to you is, who's talking? Whose opinion are you considering? And sometimes it's, parents are a very common one for that. We want our parents to be proud of us. We want them to esteem our decisions, and so we have a they. Now, we have all sorts of varying ones. I have had some very funny ones in my life, and I don't recognize it. But even when I'd be talking with Leslie, it's like, but what would they say? And she's like, who? I, I don't know, they? <laughs> who is that? And then you begin to evaluate that. It's like, who is they? Or how about this one? They're all making fun of me. Who is? I don't know. I feel it. <laughs> you see, there's a they out there, and they're, making, they're mocking you, but you can't even put one name to it. It's just the they. They're out there. I know it. But it bothers you, doesn't it? Why do you even care that they are mocking you? Why does it even matter? Because they matter to you. The opinion of they. Did I ever tell you guys that one story, that dream I had? Way back, this is when God was dealing with they's in my life. But I was in this huge stadium. I mean, it was just packed with seventy to 80,000 young women. And I was, you know, taken up onto this stage. And in my memory, I am a spectacle. And in one voice throughout the stadium, there was one single word spoken. And it crescendoed throughout the stadium. It was this. Sick. <laughs> and what's weird is I had a they in my life, and I, I wouldn't have known it until then. And that was the opinion of the younger generation of women. I wanted to be found attractive. I wanted them to like me. I wanted them to esteem me. It didn't mean I had to marry them. I just wanted them to like me. I wanted to woo their hearts. You know, Justin Bieber, Eric Ludy. So when we make decisions in our life, we oftentimes have a they. And I don't just mean the they that we're scared of their opinion. We also have a they that we want to get approval from. And so what we say, for instance, if you ever gained office, if you ever gained a position, what's going through your mind? The enemy's baiting you with this. Just think what they will think. Boy, if they could see you now. If they, is they? And why does it matter if they could just see me now? And so what do we do? We will compromise. We will allow corruption into our lives so that they can be impressed. 
Hmm. Social advancement. Suddenly, you hit 30,000 likes on Facebook. What is going through your mind? Just think what they will think. Who's they? Why does it matter? It is the most bizarre, ridiculous thing. But we are controlled by these things. Why do we care about those things? Why are we even pondering it? Because they need to like me. They need to think highly of me. Who is they? Pure acceptance. Just think what they will think. Okay, and there's like those clusters of people at school and you have a sense about it. This group is cool. This group is hip. This group, if you are associated with them and you can be seen around them, it actually brings you up in everyone's opinion. So sometimes you just sort of hang out near the fringes of it. Because even being close, just think what they will think. If you could go out with one of these girls, there's a select amount of girls in a school. If you could go out with one of them, just think what they would think. Church approval. Just think what they will think. We do this. There's certain things that we actually look back at our church back home or the church at large, the Christian community, and we say, boy, they're going to be impressed with this one. Yeah, they will like this. Well, why does it matter? But it does. Number five, family support. Just think what they will think. You ever had it where you're wondering about your brothers and sisters, your extended relatives? I, oh, I'd always have these reunions. You'd go back to the reunions, and you just want to have something for the day. Some, some bone to throw in and just say, like, yeah, this is what I've been doing. And everyone's going to go, oh, we're so impressed. And so you work it over in your mind, like, how could I present myself in such a way where it comes across right? Did you guys, did you guys ever hear my massive compromise uh, at my first class reunion? I was asked in some thing before I, I came, because I had signed up for it, so Leslie and I were going to come, uh, what my job description was. I had to be careful with that. You see, if I tell them that I preach the gospel for a living, that's not going to come across well to they. So I said that, I'm trying to remember the exact words for it, but I was a communicator Oh, I can't remember the exact term, but basically I went from, it gave the illusion that I went from business to business. Oh, a motivational speaker. That's what I was. I was a motivational speaker. I am. That's exactly what I was saying. It's true. It's true. God, I can't be convicted on this because I'm only telling the truth. Why is this serpent innocent as a dove in this one? No, I didn't want to lay it out there that, what do you do for a living? I love Jesus Christ. Is it true or not? I don't want them to think these things about me, that I am just one of those guys that is just so radical and weird that I lost all sense of reality. I still have a sense of reality. I can still be cool when I need to be. Compromise! Eric Ludy compromised. Parental applause. Just think what they will think. Oh, when I was in college... I remember, you know, just the soccer, when I I made the soccer team at college, my entire thought was, just think what my dad will think. I I want to be pleasing to my family. I want to be pleasing to my parents. 
but I can't be controlled by this. It's not like I go and seek the opposite. I want to be displeasing to them. What would make it more displeasing to them and that's more spiritual? That's not true. I want to be pleasing to my family, but I'm willing to put Jesus higher. And if there's ever a test between the two, I will choose Jesus. Financial gain. What's one of the number one things we think of when we talk about having money in our pocket? Just think what they will think. If they could know how much money I make now, I make more than they do. What will they think? Hmm. The true treasure, that which should define every action. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field. Remember, Mamonos was a treasure? But this isn't talking about that treasure. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man has found, he hides, and for joy therefore, thereof goes and sells all that he has. He tears down all the other Mamonos altars. He sells everything. Breaks open his spikenard. Why? Sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. No other mimonos in our life. There's one treasure, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, this, is, this story can be looked at from two angles. This could be the heavenly angle, Jesus seeing a treasure buried in a field, which is us. And he goes and he sells all to purchase it. That would be true. However, it's the pattern of the kingdom. When we see true value, we sell all in order to get it. The essence of the gospel. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she has done shall be spoken of for memorial of her. We call this the essence of the gospel. You have a pantry over here, and it's full of you. All your abilities, your talents, everything that the world could esteem. And every single one of us becomes an expert in what the world esteems in this life. And what do you think we're storing up in this pantry? Anything that would impress they. That's how we've lived our entire life. And so if you were to take a tour through any of our pantries, we could probably, if we were honest, say, yeah, and I put that in there just in case they stop by. And yeah, I have this one here just in case they ever, you know, visited and poked their head in my pantry. And this one is always just a great story. Whenever I'm at this cocktail party, I can always bring up this story. And it just makes me look good. We have our pantry. The things that are, it's like our armaments. It's our weaponry to defend our image and to produce awe and amazement in those around us. And what does God say? He says, this, what this woman has done is the essence of the gospel. So when the gospel is preached, we better be talking about what this woman did. What did she do? She took her mimonos. She took that which she trusted and that which gave her security, that which made her feel at home in a world that is far away from God. And she broke it open on her true Lord, Master, and King. Her true treasure. All this goes so that I can have all of him. Pouring out the precious thing. We must hate the mamonos. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You see, you cannot have a pantry full of you and have Jesus Christ. You have to choose. Do you want Jesus, or do you want your pantry? Do you want to appease they in this world, or do you want to appease him? 
You choose. Because you can't do both. You can't serve both God and they. You can't. The ordnung. The ordnung is the right way or the correct order, the, inappro- the appropriate behavior, the spoken and unspoken expectations of the group. The voice in your head, what they think. It's a German word for order, the unspoken way that you are supposed to live. Okay, now, I'm going to use this term because it just says it really well. Ordnung. Now, for those of you that grew up in more of an Anabaptist background, you may have had an ordnung. You may have actually been in an environment where there was an unspoken idea of how you're supposed to live. And if you violate that, you're at risk of being removed from the synagogue. This is intense stuff. You do not violate the ordnung. The ordnung is a set of rules for Amish, Old Order, Mennonite, and conservative Mennonite living. Ordnung is the German word for order, discipline, rule, arrangement, organization, or system. Because the Amish have no central church government, each assembly is autonomous and is its own governing authority. Thus, every local church maintains an individual set of rules adhering to its own ordnung, which may vary from district to district as each community administers its own guidelines. An Amish man noted, the order is not written down. The people just know it. That's all. Rather than a packet or rules to memorize, the ordnung is the understood behavior by which the Amish are expected to live. In the same way that the rules of grammar are learned by children, so the ordnung, the grammar of order. Isn't that an interesting way of saying it? It's the grammar of order. It's the way you're supposed to live. If you do this right, you learn the grammar of order just like you learn grammar of how to speak correctly, how to hold your fork correctly. You are learning these things from a young age. There's a way that is appropriate here in our community. If you violate that, you will be removed from this community. So it's a grammar of order which is learned by Amish youth. The classic quotes about they. But what would they say? But they won't like it. But they won't approve. But they will never go for this. Yep. I, I've said every single one of those more than at least 100 times probably. These are just classic quotes that we in our native state down here, even though we are being redeemed, we've never allowed the gospel to penetrate to cut these cords. I even remember in that day when I heard A.W. Tozer's quote of that the gospel sets us free from the tyranny of public approval, I remember just longing to understand that practically. I remember reading it on paper. Like, you've heard me say it. It's just sort of flown around in the room. It doesn't mean you have it. You still could have a cord attached to you. And you really do care what they think. And even as I'm talking, you're like, I just, I can't imagine not caring what they think. However, that is the life that you've been called to live. My own personal they, the infectious power of emotional indebtedness. I had a they in my life. And it was a very powerful they in my life. And it wasn't my parents or my family. It wasn't peer pressure. I, not that those things didn't affect me. They did. But there was a very, very strong cord that held my life. There was one particular man in my past that sort of caught a vision for my life and sponsored me. And he basically said, look, Eric, I believe that you can make a difference. And he gave money to my life. He sponsored me. He helped me in college. He helped me. And even I remember him telling me that... You know, Eric, if you decide to not go in the direction you're going, I was studying to be a doctor, then I would like to 
go into business with you. And he you know, he's very well off and uh, astute man. I mean, very just an amazing guy. I mean, I, I always loved him, looked up to him, but there was a whole strange attachment. I don't want to even blame it on him. But there was a strange attachment where every decision I made, I felt like I owed him. If I succeeded, I owed him. If I ever became something, I owed him. So at every turn, I would evaluate if my decision would please him. It's the most bizarre thing. Why, why would it matter? Did it come with strings? He never told me it did. He never said, and I expect you to do this, this, and this. However, it did in my soul. And I had some strange attachment, but I didn't have any words for it. It was just pressure. And the big moment in my life was when I was called to leave college and go on the mission field. And I was already getting enough flack from the college saying that I was burying my talent and how could I, Eric? I mean, but I didn't care about what they said. I didn't care about my uh, pre-med advisor and what he said. It's not that I didn't hear it. It's just that it, didn't, it wasn't they to me. But there was one opinion that I cared about. And disappointing that man, he had invested so much in me and had such high hopes for me to leave my college and go onto the mission field? I mean, that's pathetic. That was ridiculous. And I felt every inch of it. I felt like I was disappointing someone. The whole while I was there, I was grieving over the fact that I'd lost his good opinion. It was weird. And I remember coming to my parents and I was talking this through with them and I said, I, every decision I make, I, I have him in my mind. And I don't know why it's there. I remember my mom, she just comes up to me, sits her hand on my shoulder and prays that whatever this was would be broken. I'd never thought of that. <laughs> you know, and from that day forward, it was. It was spiritual. That's what was weird. I didn't understand what it was, but it was a spiritual attachment. There was an indebtedness in my soul. And as a result, I felt that I owed something to someone but I owe nothing but to Jesus Christ in this matter. I've been raised up to serve Him. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. It's an interesting application of that scripture when you talk about the they. Do I still have a they? Well, that's an interesting question that I stuck into my own notes. I did, even last week. I didn't notice it until I was preparing this message. And I'm not saying this last week. It was actually probably a week before this. I prepared this message, I think it was around three weeks ago. And when I was going through it and I was meditating upon it, I recognized, and God was putting his finger on something, that there is something. I don't necessarily serve it, but it bothers me at every turn. You know that I say things, and some of you are just like shocked that I feel so free to say certain things in this generation, because I don't care about what society says. I don't care about what this world says. I don't care about what uh, the political agenda is, and if I'm politically incorrect, I fully expect to be. And so it would seem on the outside that I am immune to any type of they. However, they's can be subtle, and they's can creep in in various ways if you're not watchful, and if we are not aware of how these forms of idolatry slip in, which is why we need messages like this, to freshly clean house, and say, look, we serve Jesus Christ. I had a they. And it's strange, but it would, and I can't go into much detail on it, unfortunately, but I'll give you just a basic. It's a version of conservative Christianity 
that has always been very harsh on me. And they want me to play a certain game. They want me to dot this I and they want me to cross this T. And if you watch my life, you'll notice I don't. And I refuse to play this game, but I tell you what, it's a they. And when I'm doing anything, when I'm getting up to preach or I'm doing things, I would have the they in the back of my head. I don't know why, and you could get mad at me and say, I can't believe all those sermons I was hearing, you had a they? <laughs> I wasn't choosing to. It wasn't like I was waking up that morning going, come on, they, let's go to church. I didn't recognize it. And it was subtle, and I wasn't subservient to it, which is why I could try and get out of this with some dignity. And say, it's not like I was not speaking because of it. I kept going, but it bothered me at every turn. You know, it was, I think it was this last week, I, I actually made a very clear, decisive annulment of that. To say, I will not be under the thumb of that. I will serve Jesus Christ. I will serve the Word of God. And that is my they. My they is Jesus Christ. You could say the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or you could say the 66 books of the Bible. I have a they. Sure. It's the Word of God. And what it says goes. Anyone that counsels me to violate that or to diminish something, or to not speak on that. It's there. And those 66 books speak louder than that they in this world. So do I still have a they? Well, it depends on how I answer that question now. Not the one I did have, but there is a new one that is firmly established. Not new, but it is being firmly established as the ruler of all Eric's soul. And yes, there could be other they's that God pokes his finger at and says, Eric... Remember that message on the power of they? Look at this thing over here. It's like, what? Oh, I didn't see that. There could be another chord, but God is very faithful to deal with those things in my life. They and idolatry. Well, when you serve the they of this world, it is idolatry. There, this is an amazing statement that Sandy uh, came up with when she was meditating upon this message. See, Moses goes up onto Mount Horeb. He receives the commandments. He's been there 40 days. He comes back down. Do you remember what Aaron had done? He built a golden calf. And so Moses is like, what in, what, why did you do this? Aaron's response, they said unto me, make us gods which shall go before us. He trembled before the they. And as a result, he built a false calf god. You know, our tendency today is to appease even the Christian world and to build a golden calf god. See, only represent the softer elements of his nature. You don't want to actually say, come and die. Forsake all. Because that's going to offend people. If you give the gospel in all its power, its force, you know that there are people that won't like you? And there's people that will be offended by it? But if you placate them and you just say, okay, I could give the gospel, but I could diminish this, 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 and this, and then everyone would like me. Suddenly you've built a golden calf God for a generation. That isn't God. That's a God of man's making. It's the God that man, I'm sorry, it's the God, yeah, that is right. It's the God that man would serve in his own native state. This is the way I want my God to be. Well, God doesn't placate. God isn't playing a game saying, how do you want me? I'll shapeshift for this generation. I'll change me for you. No, you change for him. He's God. He doesn't change. He's a rock. You, on the other hand, need to do a little house cleaning. You need to change. There's only one that can do that, and that's God. The one who doesn't change wants to change you into his image. That's the way it goes. The odd mixture of, the odd mixture of our modern day, being God's people the world's way. 
Well, that's a funny way to be God's people. Yeah, I'd like to be one of God's people, but I'd like to be like the world in how I am one of God's people. You can't be one of God's people the world's way. Have we not gotten that into our thick skulls? No, I don't think we have. This is critical. So we have this scripture in the book of 2 Kings during the reign of Ahaz. You have Judah. Israel has been completely taken over by Assyrians because of their idolatry. Well, guess who also has idolatry? Judah. Judah is literally dying because of their idolatry. They have forsaken God. However, what does it say? So while these nations feared the Lord, they also served their idols. They had a form of religion. They had a form of godliness. It's like, oh, no, we're the people of God. We're the Jews. Yeah, yeah, we have a long history of serving God. Yeah, we fear him. And yet, what did they do the whole time? They served their idols. And as a result, their nation was falling into disrepair, falling apart. Does that sound familiar to maybe our souls or our Christian world today? We have this supposed fear of God, this form of religion, and yet we are going after our idols, and we are actually bowing down and serving them the whole while we're saying we're serving Jehovah. Something's a little quirky about that, don't you think? It doesn't work. Men pleasers. Our word, sorry to give you such a big word, anthroparaskos, which means studying to please man, courting the favor of men. I, I remember when I was in I think it was high school, there was this new kid that came to school, and he was just cool. I don't know how else to articulate it, but he came from like Southern California or something. He just had, he was just polished. You know, most of the other guys in the school, they were trying to be cool. He just was cool. And he had a hat, and he wore this hat sort of cockeyed. It went off to the side. And I remember thinking, I like that. And then the way he talked even, and the terminology he used, He'd use words, I'm not just saying cuss words, he used words that are just new and fresh. It's like, I like the way this guy talks. And so what do you do as a man pleaser? You study what pleases men. And so I was figuring, I like that. Therefore, if I could have my own rendition, maybe I could have some words. Maybe I could, maybe my hat doesn't go out this way, maybe it goes out this way. We're very original, I know. But he had sort of a cool movement to him. It's not, it wasn't a strut. It wasn't a giveaway strut. It was just sort of a subtle one where he just sort of swaggered. And so I had to study this in front of the mirror. It's just sort of like, no, no. Yeah, there we go. A little more fluid, Eric. A little more fluid. <laughs> We're men pleasers. And we actually think about what would please men. And it's a disease we wake up in the morning when we're getting ready in the morning, we're thinking about the they and what they're going to approve. The way we dress, the way we talk, the way we walk, everything. How will they feel about me? Will they like me? It's called men-pleasing. Here's our word. Anthroparaskos. Courting the favor of men. It's a purposeful action of the soul. And so we have, not with eye service, as men-pleasers. This is literally denounced in Scripture. But as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, we are not men pleasers. We do not wake up in the morning and say, what will they think? What do we wake up in the morning and think? I want to please God. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart fearing God. 
Thessalonians 2, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. From our exhortation did not come from terror... For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men. What a context for that. Look, we have all these against us, but we will speak this gospel, but not to please men. Well, why wouldn't you speak the gospel to please men? Isn't that the whole point? Well, to the modern church it is, not to the historic church. We speak the gospel to please God. Is not the lamb that was slain worthy to receive the reward of his suffering? And I'm going to speak the true words of Scripture. And it's not because I don't love you that I give you the true words of Scripture. It's because I do love you. I love you, but I love him more. And so therefore, I'm not going to try and pacify you. I'm not just going to try and make you feel comfortable. I'm going to give you that which will set you free so that you can give glory unto him. If I don't give you truth, I'm not actually helping you. I'm not trying to please you. I want to please him. And in pleasing him, guess what? You're the happiest of people because you hear truth. And that's how it works. When we please God, suddenly we actually do help this world. So not as pleasing men, but God who tests our heart. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. You see, what you hear in Paul is a man who he is considering. He loves the church. And so he's talking to the church at Thessalonica, and he's literally saying, I I love you. I love you, but I didn't speak to you, and I do not speak to you, and I will not speak to you in the future just to try and please you. I'm going to please God. And as I please God, I'm going to be serving you the way you must be served. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. What? Did you just hear that? You cannot be both. You cannot be a men pleaser and a God pleaser. You choose God or Mamonas. You choose who you're going to serve. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I, was neither rece- I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, to be honest, I made up this Greek word. I shouldn't tell you that because I'm sure it is a Greek word. But the other one was anthro, which is men-pleasing. So what I did is I took the word for pleasing, and I took the word for God, which is theos, okay? So theos paraskos. And if there's any Greek scholars in here, they'd be like, well done, Eric. Uh, (laughs) Theos paraskos. Isn't that impressive that I could build my own Greek word? It's like I have a little laboratory. I'm like... Uh, Choosing to please God over man. Now, this is the concept all throughout Scripture. Now, even though I had to cobble together some Greek to make this happen, this is the concept of Scripture. Choosing to please God over man, considering obedience to God the primary virtue. Theos paraskos. This even sounds good. It has a little poetry to it. A higher ordnung. Now, you know, 
I don't want to kick in the teeth the concept of an ordinung. Do you know that, in a sense, every healthy environment has an order? It does. And do you know that in an order, like in this environment, you may not agree with everything we do, but there's still an order here. And it's not appropriate for you just to get up and start screaming at me. Okay? That, there's a proper way of talking, and that wouldn't be it. Okay? Even if you totally disagree, there's just a proper order to things. And you show respect and love to each other in respecting an ordinum. If I showed up in an almost community, do you know that I would respect their environment? I wouldn't come in and say, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. That is completely unbiblical. That's not how I would do it. I would respect that. Now, if that ordinum asked me to violate my conscience, what would I say? No, I cannot do that. I will serve God, not man. But the concept of an order, a human order, is not bad. Your family might not have been healthy growing up, but to show disrespect disrespect or disregard to your parents when they say clean your room is actually a violation of your relationship with God. It's a sin. Even though your parents might have been unhealthy, and even though their requirements for you cleaning your room were a little strict, they weren't as gracious as you think God's would have been. Still, you're in a proper order, and you show respect to that order. So let's... Uh, read this. So they, the rulers, elders, and scribes, called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. The highest ordinung in the Hebrew culture was the high priest, the chief rulers. And so literally John and Peter have the audacity to say whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. Isn't it obvious to all of us that God is the highest authority, not just the priests? And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the chief and the high priest asked them, you know how big this is? The high priest. The high priest in Israel is a huge thing, even in Scripture. The high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in his name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. So is Peter going to kowtow? Is he going to say, whoa, the high priest? See, the ordnung among the Hebrews is the priest. That's the religious system. And you show respect to it. God even commands them to show respect to the high priest. And he says, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. There's our theos paraskos right there. Our agenda is to be pleasing to God in all things. The heavenly they. So, you know, this is a strange twist to this, but did you know that you're supposed to have a they? Yeah, you're supposed to have a they. It's just a heavenly they, not a worldly they. It doesn't matter what this world says, but it does matter what heaven says. So the 66 that always have something to say on the matter. There's 66 books of the Bible. You know that they always have something to say? You know that they have an opinion on the matter? So when we're sitting in our bed wondering what they will think, what they are we thinking of? What does Scripture say on the matter? That's actually a healthy soul. A study in the power of biblical persuasion. You see, we're not supposed to be controlled by social and societal persuasion. We're controlled by biblical persuasion. You know that when God speaks, we bend the knee and we say, hey, my God said it. It's that it's done. It's, it's that simple. My God says it. I heed his command. Being free of the sway of an earthly they, but respecting the ordinum. Here's a funny balance for any of you that are in a situation where it's just like, but the, the order or the environment of the family community that I'm in 
is not totally healthy. You might be returning to a church after Ellerslie. Do you come in and you know, beat up the church just because it's not perfect with Scripture? How do you handle the environments that you come into? So here's a combination, being free of the sway of an earthly they. In other words, you're not controlled by they. However, you still will show respect to the order in which you have arrived. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. In other words, your job isn't to make disorder. It's to actually honor the order in which you are. If you go to a different country as a missionary, one of the first things you need to learn is that you're coming in and there's an order to things. There's a way you do things. I remember hearing about going to Mexico and everyone needed to wear long pants or something like that. And I remember thinking, great, it's going to ruin my tan line. I'm going to lose my tan all throughout the summer because I need to wear shorts in the summer. But to show respect, I don't know if it still is this way, to show respect, you at least need to dress in pants. I remember thinking, that is ridiculous. It doesn't matter, Eric, if it's ridiculous or not. Your whole job to go down there is to come under and serve, not to be served. And so when we come into any environment, it doesn't matter if some of the things they do are a little weird. It's like, I wouldn't do it that way. It doesn't matter if you would do it that way. You're coming into someone else's house. You don't stick your feet up on their couch. In other words, you understand that you're in someone else's environment and you show respect to that environment. Sure, in your house, you might feel completely comfortable to do it. It's your house, but not in someone else's house. Three challenging ordnungs. The denomination. There's a denominational ordnung. There's a way that you do it. There's a way that you speak it. And if you're a pastor in a certain denomination, any denomination, do you know there's a pressure? There's a pressure to toe the party line. However, I'm going to say, I don't care what denomination you're from. We have every conceivable denomination in this room. Whatever denomination you're from, you have a they higher than a denomination. And that's the 66 books of the Bible. Now, where your denomination is in perfect stride with those 66 books, cheer it on. If it violates it at any point, you are still responsible to stand true with Scripture. You are. Yes, you may lose your position. It's possible. Your job is to stay true to Scripture. The denomination... You know that you really should show respect. There is order. There is authority. There are people that have been put in charge. And if they are asking you to do something like, you know, could you make an announcement this week for our national conference, then absolutely. You say, sure, I'd love to help with that. You may not agree with everything at that conference. However, you can show respect in that type of environment. If they asked you to violate what you feel is very clearly enunciated in Scripture, and they say you cannot teach it, or you must teach this instead of that, well, guess what? As a pastor, you must speak that which is true to the Word of God. That's your they. So the husband. Now, we have a lot of twisting on this point. You know that women are supposed to uh, submit to their husbands? However, are they supposed to submit no matter what the husband asks? Well, that would violate everything else we've just read. You see, there's a higher ordnung. There's a higher they than even a husband. And yet it's noble and it's right to show respect unto a husband. But if that husband asks you to do something that violates the 66 books, the very nature of heaven, guess what? No, it is better that I obey God than a husband. That's a strange statement, isn't it? How about the socio-political system? Well, political correctness. There are things that do not translate well in our culture. And when you do them, you will be classified as one who hates, and yet you as a Christian are one who loves. And so the last thing you want is for your good to be evil spoken of. But if you do that one thing, if you stand on that point, guess what? You'll be classified as one of the haters. Well, that doesn't seem like it's going to help the name of Jesus, does it? However, 
Your job is to not care what they think. It's to please him. Beware. Believing salvation is found in blindly following the ordnum. Now, some people feel that their salvation comes. Like they are actually secure in God when they submit to whatever environment they are in. And there are a lot of women that will do the same in a marriage. As long as they submit to their husband, they find salvation in their submission to a husband, to an earthly man, instead of unto Jesus. Our job is to submit to Jesus. That is the higher order. In the Bible, it says respect the high priest, and yet Peter and John both defied the high priest. How could they do that? Because there is a higher law. There is a higher ordnung. There is a higher order in every situation. Respecting the ordnung. So I'm going to give you a heavenly rule of thumb. As long as I am not pitted against the word of God or asked to disobey the clear word of God, I will submit. Prove orderly, respectful, and honorable. I'm not being asked to violate my conscience. I'm not being asked to do something that violates the 66 books. They may tax me 30% of my wages. They may tax me 75% of my wages. However, if they're not asking me to violate my conscience, if they're not asking me to to go against the, the clear word of Scripture, then I say, absolutely. You know that this is what slaves were asked to do? Slaves were asked to literally submit to their masters. However, if their masters asked them to violate their conscience, a slave could not submit to it. A slave would rather go to their death than recant about Jesus, than to actually say anything or to do anything that would hinder their soul. Then he went down with them. This is speaking of Jesus, with his parents, and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. Well, God? Jesus was subject to his earthly parents? Of course. Because he knew how to properly live. And he needed to come under that authority. Well, he's the king of all kings. All things are under his feet. But he was modeling how we ought to live. He was the perfect man. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. You see, if all you did was read these scriptures, you would say, well, that's how I'm saved. I'm saved by following the ordnung. I'm saved by heeding whatever is asked of me. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Wherefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance, it's pretty close to ordinung, of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Well, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to submit. You're supposed to show respect. You're supposed to show honor. This is just how the Bible works. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Submit to the ordinance. Submit to it. Show it respect. However, remember what we're building here? I'm making it very clear. Your job description in this life is not rebellion against any earthly authority. That isn't your plan. Your desire is to live peaceably with all men as far as it depends on you. And so therefore, in your home, in your family, you will submit and you'll show respect if you come to a church and they have some interesting statements to make. It doesn't mean you come up, just stand up and break order. In other words, you do submit, but there's a proper way of handling things. It's called appeal. And when you make appeal, it shows respect and honor. And what you are is a vehicle of love. And you are showing respect and honor in this generation. And so in every situation, you may not agree with everything. You came to Ellerslie and we asked you not to text while you were here for nine weeks. I'm not against texting. However, many of us are addicted to it. So we said, are you willing to lay that down for nine weeks? And some of you are like, 
There's no way I'm going to do that. <laughs> That's actually danger for your soul because you've come into an environment where there's a reasonable request of your soul. It doesn't ask you to violate the canon of Scripture. It's an appeal to your soul to say, this is how we'd like to make this work here. And so for all of us, we actually do show respect to the environment we're in. And yet, if you were being asked to compromise your soul while here, you should get up and leave. In other words, if anything was ever asked of you that would counter Scripture, you should not submit to that. doesn't matter who it is. Eric's not even the high priest. If the high priest says something to John and Peter, but he's asking them to be quiet on the issues of Jesus and to not preach that gospel... What should they do? We must obey God instead of man. Respecting the priest. Now the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall put away the evil from Israel. This is literally, Peter and John grew up with Deuteronomy 17. They understand the significance of submitting to the priest. You don't. Just stand there and spit in his face? You don't do that. And yet, when they were asked to violate the higher ordinum, they chose to obey God instead of the priest. And they were walking in righteousness. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Okay, here's another heavenly rule of thumb. There is a time to disobey. Isn't that a funny statement? You know that it's called civil disobedience throughout Christian history? That men and women will spend time in prison, but they will suffer for for Christ's sake and not for idiocy? In other words, they're not just vandals, they're not just criminals, they're actually righteous. And yet there they are in a prison cell. You know that Jesus was righteous and yet he was hung on a cross and treated as a criminal was treated? In other words, we recognize that when we follow God higher as a higher order, as a higher order than this world, what will happen? We recognize that we will suffer in this world. We will suffer in this world even as a criminal would suffer because we're at violation with this world, though we be in agreement with the higher law. In heaven, we may be a hero, but on earth, We are in violation to the order of things. Are we willing to stand with God instead of with the order of things down here? If the choice is between obeying God or obeying man, God must be obeyed. Now, this is a key line. Even though such obedience would be construed as unsubmissive, disorderly, disrespectful towards the ordinance, which, by the way, every single one of us wants to be. We want to be respectful. We want to be submissive to that which God has put over our life. And yet... To obey God in that situation would make us appear as if we are not, that we're rebellious. It doesn't matter what they think, though. You must follow God in your conscience. You must walk in alignment with the counsel of the 66 books. So, and even though such obedience may lead to external punishments and sufferings, the proper response to the improper request. So, Someone asks you to do something that violates the 66 books. What do you do? Well, let's talk about that. Do you hit them in the teeth and go, I can't believe you asked me to do that. (laughs) That's what we feel like doing sometimes. But again, that's worldly behavior. Where godly men and women 
but we cannot behave as the world. How does Jesus respond when he is being asked to do things that are against the heavenly command? How did Peter and John handle it? You know that they still maintained respect? Though you cannot obey the request, your bearing in disobeying is still the bearing of Jesus Christ. In your disobedience to the unhealthy ordinance, isn't that funny to say that we need to be disobedient? We need to be disobedient to the worldly ordinance so that we can be obedient unto God. But in your disobedience to the unhealthy ordinance, you still must maintain love, respect, gentleness, humility, and honor in your behavior and action. Just because someone is demanding your soul into compromise does not mean you should compromise the attitude and bearing of Christ that you carry. You must refuse them with a nobility of soul intact, with love and forgiveness in your tone, and with gentleness and honor in your manner. The voice of the religious. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? Okay, this is the voice of the religious. When you give your life to Jesus Christ and you empty your pantry, you know what the religious is going to say? There's a system around us. And they say, this is a waste. You had so much potential. I can't believe you're doing this. The amazing thing about these two stories I'm going to finish with are there was an accusation brought from the they. Could you imagine Mary? She's like pouring out everything. You know how hard this is? She is obeying God. She's saying, I ref- I'm willing to sacrifice all this. Yet that voice is there. Is she going to stop? Is she going to try and catch it and say, yes, this should have gone to the poor? You know that she is silent and she continues to do what she's doing. And look who speaks. The voice of Jesus. You see, when we play to the they, Jesus has no opportunity to speak in our defense. But when we play to God, when we do what we do unto God, you know who speaks for us? The voice of Jesus. And Jesus said, let her alone. Why trouble you her? Isn't that good? Now look at this story. The voice of family. Now it came to pass, as by the way, Mary is the same Mary in this story. And now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village, Jesus, entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his words, but Martha was cumbered about with much serving. And came to Jesus and says, this is a they. There's a way that you're supposed to be in my house, Mary. I'm working all hard over here and look at you. You're sitting at the feet of Jesus. And so she comes to Jesus and says, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. That voice of family, that voice that is niggling at the edges of your soul commitment unto God saying should I give my all to I, I want to show respect. I want to make sure my sister knows that I love her. I'm not just leaving her to do all this stuff. The voice of Jesus. Who speaks for Mary? And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part. Are you willing to allow God to be your defender? Are you willing to allow Jesus to be the one to answer this world? You keep your eyes focused up here. You go into your pantry, deafen your ears to what this world has to say. Allow Jesus to cut those cords and you bring your spike nard and you break it open on Jesus Christ. And though the words will be said and though the accusations will come, you keep focused up here and allow Jesus to justify your life. 
Allow Jesus to be your defender. The fear of God. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Ye that love the Lord hate evil. One of the statements that I've always said is that the fear of God is loving what God loves and hating what God hates. Do we hate the mamonas? Do we hate this idolatry? Or do we just try not to do it? It's like, yeah, God, I can see how you don't like it. But we still love the good opinion of men. We still love to be approved. We still love the applause. Are you willing to hate it? Are you willing to finally allow God to come in and do that surgical work of removal and tear down that idolatry in your life so that you can serve the applause of heaven? That's what you care about. It's what he thinks. It's what he says. No servant can serve two masters. Just in case you've missed this scripture, I'm going to read it again. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mamonos. For they, the Pharisees, love the praise of men more than the praise of God. For they, the true Christians, loved the praise of God more than the praise of men. That's a summation of everything that Christianity is. We love the praise of God more than the praise of men. Are you willing to be deemed a fool in this generation, an idiotes, an idiot in the world's eyes, that you might be truly intelligent in heaven's eyes. You agree with God. You believe him. He is your savior. He is the only way to salvation. There's only one way to live. And you found it. Are you willing to be bold as a lion and standing up and not cowering like the parents of the blind man who now sees for fear of being put out of the synagogue? Being put out of the synagogue might be sort of fun. You are called in this generation to live as Christ lived in his. Same Christ, new generation. Allow him to find clothing in your life where you, these hands and these feet, these eyes, this mouth becomes his. And he lives his life in and through you in this earth. God, not Mamonas. You bend your knee to him, declaring he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.